What's up, bootlickers? I haven't seen y'all since the camp out. I got something to say, right? Anarchy is and always has been the best way and the only morally sensible way to run the world. Cool. It's not just cool. It's the intersection of life and politics, activism and action. And there's only one way to get power. Organize all the workers together. One big union. And the war the IWW wants you to get into is class war. War against the capitalists. Come on! It's not criminal to be an individual. It's not criminal to be an individual. How could you go to a riot without me? You were supposed to be on a riot, buddy. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space! I was a victim, too. At least my wife was. She had friends who were socialists. Oh, my God. Welcome, welcome to the Three Left Show. I am your host, Daniel Platt, live here in the studio in Albany, New York. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left-wing perspective for the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future value, direct democracy, and a commons economy. We are so far from these things. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. Very important. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology, we proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. Again, I'm your host, Dan Platt. This uh, edition of the show and program, Leftist Reading Hours, uh, where I read various articles, I'll actually start with a video this time. Uh, I want to cover, I've done past episodes about the Green Party. I even, one episode was just me playing audio from our presidential convention in 2020. Obviously, our result was disastrous. And so I haven't really talked about Green Party or third party politics since then. I have not really been in an electoral mood. But New York, as well as probably other states, had other primaries, electoral primaries. And as far as having the glorious one-party uh, people state of New York and other states, that is the general election, right? If, you, if you're going to be uh, politically active, you need to be, participate in the party, the party, the party, not just any party, the party. And that's the way people not only think about it, but it seemed to be okay with. Or when it's suggested that everyone doesn't like the two-party system, which will basically be the main focus of railing against and discussing how it's bad, because that's kind of like, it's okay to know, usually it's most people do, know it's bad, and that's why they don't even participate. But then participation then doesn't become playing that game as much as then campaigning for reform, if not different elections, doing your own elections, having your own government. This is how revolution really occurs. You form your own sort of government, pseudo-government. It may not have police power. It may not have, uh, you know, military so taxing power, though collecting dues voluntarily is sort of the actual voluntary. Taxes are not theft. Labor profit would no longer be theft if we organize properly. But we're all kind of tied down and trapped in the system. So it's just there's, a, there's that, that conflict, that paradox, uh, how to break out. And so I think a lot more people being nonconformist like myself, but I put myself so outside of um, what other people are doing. And uh, not all, all the while, there is these possibilities where I might get a state job or my, I, you know, we get a full-time job or something more stable. 
uh, as I get older, it's there's more pressure, but also less. Uh, it, it's complicated. It's feelings. So first, a more a brass tacks video from Tildare News US, which is about the New York mayoral primary. Uh, I have to eat a little crow, or I have to redact myself, like retract. I kind of put out a kind of sentiment that like Yang was a shoe in to be the next mayor of New York City. You know, he had set himself up as a a force in the in the Democratic primary last year, uh, in the intervene, intervening years. Uh, popular name recognition, UBI candidate. The ma- he's the math guy, business leader, whatever. And he had set himself up in the Democratic Party, even though to to like to it seemed like he was a shoe in, and he was the front runner for a while because you know his with the name recognition, the media is covering him for the most part. But he has lost big time. So let's go into a video. It is nine minutes. Hello and welcome to another TLDR US video. In this one, we'll be taking a look at the Democratic and Republican primaries for New York City's mayor and explain how Andrew Yang went from a 15-point lead over his Democratic rivals to coming in fourth and why the results of this vote are so crucial. If you like our videos, then be sure to subscribe for more updates as we get closer to the race taking place on November 2nd. But because New York leans so heavily Democrat, in practice, whoever wins the Democratic primary becomes the mayor. Essentially, the Democratic primary is the de facto mayoral race. This year, the Democrats changed their electoral system from a plurality system to a runoff vote system. In the previous plurality system, voters only got one vote, and whoever got the most votes won, provided they got at least 40% backing. If they didn't reach the 40% threshold, then there'll be a runoff election between the top two candidates. Bill de Blasio, the current mayor, won the 2013 primary with just 41% of the total vote. This new system is different, though, and lets voters rank up to five candidates. If a candidate has more than half of the vote based on first choices, then that candidate wins. If not, the candidate with the fewest votes is eliminated, and those voters' second preferences are redistributed. This process continues until either a candidate gets more than half the votes, or there are only two candidates left. So who are the candidates in this race? Well, there were 13 on the ballot, but it always looked like a two-horse race between Andrew Yang, who you probably remember from the Democratic presidential primaries, when he ran a grassroots campaign centered around universal basic income, and Eric Adams, an ex-police captain and state senator. The other candidates worth mentioning are Scott Stringer, a progressive candidate whose campaign was torpedoed by allegations of sexual harassment, Maya Wiley, another progressive who's backed by Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and Catherine Garcia, the sanitation commissioner who experienced a late surge thanks to endorsements from the New York Times and New York Daily News. Garcia actually campaigned alongside Yang in the last few days of the race, after he said that he would hire her if he won and urged voters to put her as their second choice. As you can see from this graph, though, Yang was originally well ahead in the race, with a good 10-point lead in February. But this race has significantly tightened since then. This is probably down to two things. Firstly, as the election gets closer, the whole thing gets a bit more real. So voters may have decided that they want to pick a safer pair of hands with a bit more local government experience. Secondly, thanks to a recent uptick in violent crime, public safety has become a top priority for voters. And as a former police captain, Eric Adams is the go-to candidate for that.
This does also seem to have hurt the more progressive candidates who endorsed some sort of defund the police program, which, whatever its possible merits, doesn't seem to have landed with voters who are particularly worried about violent crime. Thirdly, Yang has made some serious blunders in his campaign. He left the city for his home in Hudson Valley during the pandemic, admitted that he'd never actually voted in a mayoral election before, and suggested some truly weird policies, including somehow inviting TikTok hype houses to New York and building a casino on Governor's Island. That's not to say that Adams had a flawless campaign either. Despite being a police captain, the NYPD endorsed Yang over Adams and an old video of Adams encouraging parents to spy on their kids. So I also need to point out that it wasn't the NYPD itself doesn't endorse candidates, but it was the police captain's union from which he was a member didn't endorse him. So this video takes some liberties with what the facts are. Another thing like with the kind of the way it's presenting how voters think or how democratic voters think like, Oh, they just think about crime. So it's like, Oh, it's as, as it gets closer. Now it's like, if there's a slight uptick in the perception of crime, you know, or coverage of it, that's what people think about first as if that's the only thing involved. But as uh, another, the next ar- uh, article I'll read about money in politics in the New York city race, there's a lot of other forces at work and a lot of other priorities that people have the, of what they're like, what their issue is like schools. And, and for example, Kids has recently resurfaced. You write the Constitution. There are no First Amendment rights inside your household. Maybe a simple jury box, but if you look through it closely, you don't know what your child may be hiding. For instance, a gun could be hidden, a small caliber weapon could be hidden inside a jury box. Look through it to see what exactly so he has like is this, your um, child carrying set in addition to a book. A bedroom Something set, simple as a crack pipe, a crack pipe. Behind a picture frame, you can find bullets. Could be just a baby doll, but also it could be a place where you can secrete or hide drugs. Do some good I will reach in, see what it is. <laughs> this one could be hidden inside a pillow, a gun. Just look and see what's inside your bookcases. It could be more than just books. Perfect place to hide uh, cocaine or other <laughs> illegal substance inside the room. Adams also said some slightly odd things towards the end of the race. In a Vanity Fair interview, he was asked what his favorite concert was. And he said Curtis Mayfield at the Wingate concert series. Two weird things about that. So he's, he's focusing Firstly, on really obtuse, It was the like, night where the lightning break fell on Mayfield, not paralyzing him. And secondly, Mayfield no hadn't source. even started performing when the rig fell on him. So when Adams said it was an amazing concert before that happened, it's unclear which bit was amazing. Also, in the debate, when he was asked one thing he couldn't live without, he said bubble baths. But it turned out that he doesn't actually have his own bath. When he was asked where he would retire, he said Golan Heights. Which, fair enough, is a very pretty place, but Israeli-occupied Syria is not a standard answer to the question, where do you plan on retiring to? Also, when he was asked what his favorite New York might film have been was, a different Adam just replied, Taxi. There's a lot of heights in New York City. Anyway, enough memes. What were the results between Yang and Adams? Well, with 84% of first preference in-person votes counted, Adams was well in the lead, with 32% of the vote. Maya Wiley, the front-runner, a progressive candidate, is in second, with 22%. Catherine Garcia, the crisis controller, was in third, with 30%. And Yang came in a miserable fourth, with just 12% of the vote, and immediately admitted defeat. 
We probably won't know the full results until mid-July because mail-in ballots, which account for 15 to 20% of the total vote, will only be counted from the 9th of July. And as no candidate has won an outright majority thus far, so second and probably third round votes will also need to be counted. Nonetheless, it's very likely that Adams has won this race for two reasons. Firstly, his support was very geographically widespread which bodes well for his second preference it votes. Most of the Secondly, progressive candidates, one. whose second preference votes are more likely to go to Wiley, in the general did worse than the centrist candidates, whose second preferences are more likely to Oh, you know what, maybe Adams. I'm reading it wrong. I'm so now we know he's most likely going yeah. to be mayor. What are Adams' policies? Well, Adams is probably the least progressive candidate when it comes to policing. Adams basically wants to maintain spending in the NYPD, and while he wants to make some savings by improving efficiency, he's strongly but, but this rejected is, this is to partly, defund the police label, this, describing this a, it as This is led kind of a problem influence. in this kind of reporting that all of the Democratic pro- pre- uh, candidates probably said they were going to maintain funding. The, I don't think any other candidates adopted the defund the police, though I'm conjecturing here. White people. He also wants to reinstitute a controversial plainclothes anti-crime unit that was disbanded last year and increase the use of solitary confinement in the city's jails. On drugs, Adams supports the legalization of marijuana, but not other hard drugs. On education, Adams supports having an all-year-round school year, facilitated by remote learning. Originally, he proposed online classes with three to 400 students and then clarified he meant 30 to 40. The last policy we'll mention is his housing policy. Like many other big cities, housing in New York is astronomically expensive, with the average house coming in about three quarters of a million dollars, and the average cost of living being about two and a half times higher than the national average. Adams' housing policy is pretty vague, but basically seems to involve converting office and hotel space into residential properties and increasing rent subsidies. So that's what the likely winner plans to do. And obviously, we'll keep you updated with the results as they are. So that's a kind of sensible policy, mostly because like converting office space to residential, because enormous amounts of office space in Manhattan or elsewhere in New York is vacant. Uh, fun fact, a third of the Empire State Building is always vacant. Like it's or, or was it only a third is actually being used? I forget which, but it was, it blew my mind learning it. Um, that like these iconic buildings of New York that are office buildings are actually are always scrounging for tenants and don't have, like they're never fully occupied. Yeah. Any, any people, all well, I mean, there's tons of businesses of various types, you know, like say in Rockefeller Center, you know, there's law offices, Wall Street operators, you know, financial managers, you know, just professional services of all kinds. Like with the World Trade Center, like they filled it by getting government offices in there. Oh. And so the rebuilt World Trade Center. But the attraction of the Empire State Building is mostly tourism, right? That's probably how they make They don't care about those empty tours because they yeah. have tourists. Move the mic towards oh. you. I have it on. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, there we go. Now I can hear you. I mean, the, so I have here in the studio with me oh. uh, Lou. Um, introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Lou Bittler. I live uh, in the Albany area. Great. <laughs> She's a trainee of sorts. Uh, yeah. Like anyone is invited to be a volunteer and help, even just to know how things work. So overall, New York, uh, here's four takeaways from primary day New York. 
Actually, no, let's, let's stay on the New York City primary. So this is from Politico, standard Beltway coverage. So it's not really going to, I, you have to rely on me, you know, my contrarian voice to point out the larger systemic and problems with this instead of just the kind of surface level gripes. So it's candidates point fingers amid ethics allegations and a deluge of outside spending. So this is a general money in politics story. It could be seen as separately from our election system, but it totally is part of it. So like you could, we could change. Oh yeah. Another uh, issue to point out about that video that mentioned that ranked choice voting is in New York City's primaries, but only the primaries. There will not be a ranked choice vote in the general. It is just for primaries. Only for the major, the two parties, will it be ranked choice voting, but not in the rest of the system, uh, not in the general election. So fairness or a more diverse set of candidates in the primaries or in the party, the party, but not elsewhere in the state or in the general. This goes to a wider sentiment that Republicans do voter suppression, Democrats do party suppression. There are different tools that pretty much get the same result, one party rule. Mayoral candidates clamor, so, so like I roll my eyes very hard when Democrats talk of the erosion of democracy because Republicans are passing voter suppression laws and other things like that, but Democrats pass laws and regulations that suppress third parties, that destroy our chances of ever getting on the ballot, ever running fair campaigns, and this also goes for money in politics as well. As long as private money can continue to flow in, regardless of how regulated, regulated, regulated is to make sure there's no conflicts of interest. But really, it's all conflicts of interest. It's all about interest. So to take interest out of it, you need to remove private money. Uh, so anyway, mayoral candidates clamored for the moral high ground Tuesday after fundraising practices became a flashpoint in the Democratic primary. But few of the hopefuls have denounced the special interest money flooding the race. Andrew Yang went uncharacteristically negative as he, because <laughs> he's such a positive guy. And he and others trained their five on Eric Adams, who, you know, became the front runner in the last month of the race, who was the subject of a New York Times story that raised questions about his campaign bunglers, which are the people who gather campaign contributions together. Like they're the ones like kind of doing the outreach to bigger donors. Yang and Mayor Wiley both called for investigations into Adams' fundraising. Adams pointed the finger back, saying Yang's presidential campaign and nonprofit were rife with irregularities and questionable payouts. Scott Stringer bemoaned the undue influence of lobbyists and outside interests on city politics. Now, the video mentioned Stringer had a sexual abuse allegation or some kind of harassment. Another issue that was, quote-unquote, kneecapping his campaign was the fact that his staffers, because he was the more progressive candidate with the more Bernie-crat staff, they were unionizing. And they were not, they were basically doing a work slowdown until they got an agreement with the Stringer campaign. And, you know, this stops their ability from being able to win because obviously the staff aren't working, but the staff also want basic respect. And it also speaks to a larger goal of maybe winning office isn't so important, but organizing ourselves as workers is the more radical strategy and the more concrete one because as a union, as political actors, that gives us more power than voting in a one-party primary. Let's see. Politico reported Monday almost all the candidates have big money interest backing their bids through super PACs. 
which are legally barred from coordinating with their campaigns. That frickin' matters. So far, the only exceptions are Catherine Garcia and Diane Morales, which are the ones that got the lowest votes totals, which shows that money does equal more outreach. Not so much like convincing people, but outreach does matter. If you are a taxpayer in New York City, you should be angry that our money is being used to amplify the voice of special interests that do not need it, Yang said at a campaign stop at Battery Park. I'm asking on behalf of all New Yorkers for the CFB, this is the Campaign Financing Bureau in New York City, to investigate thoroughly just how much special interest money Eric bundled in violation of campaign finance laws. As a taxpayer, I'm upset. As someone like Yang Yang pays taxes, I doubt it. As someone who believes in democracy, I'm upset. We should all be upset. Now, uh, for context, because this article doesn't give it, because when Politico is written for people who, you know, already know these things, the Campaign Finance Bureau or Campaign Financing Bureau is the entity that governs their campaign financing system. New York City has a campaign finance, like public campaign financing. Unfortunately, it is a matching fund system, which means for every thousand you raise, they, the funding, the system kind of gives you $6,000. This is good for the poor candidates, but matching fund system goes across the board. So if I raise a million, that gives me six million. I'm not sure if there's even a cap or if there is, once it gets to above a certain amount, it still doesn't level the playing field, as it were. Because unless you put a cap on private money that can come in, it's always going to private Corporate corporations can always uh, outspend. I mean, so what's their purpose? I mean, if they're not... It it does help poorer candidates or working-class candidates to actually run a race. Like, you can actually participate, but your participation is not the same as having a fair shot. Right. Right? It's like you or me participating in the Olympics. Maybe it's our right to participate, or there's some kind of... You're given, given like, a a privilege of of going uh, or race. Like if we're if we're given the Olympics, that doesn't mean like we will actually be fairly there because we are not fair in ability. The same goes with a rich person running versus a working class person. We can raise a bit more money and get the word out, but we're still going to be it's still going to be a million to one. So grant based financing systems are the way to go, where you put a cap on private money and then everyone gets kind of roughly the same amount. Yeah. And because it creates all this abuse, and because of the matching fund system, there's all these layers of bureaucracy, which will be mentioned in this article to some extent. Yay. Because um, everyone loves that. Okay. Everyone hates it. <laughs> everyone hates it. So it, it kind of gives matching like um, public financing a bad name. And it's also what, like, say, people downstate are familiar with now. So, like, if you mention public financing, they're like, oh, we don't want well, It doesn't help. It doesn't make things fair. I'm like, yeah, maybe if we had a grant system. But when asked about billionaires like Jeff Yass funding a pro-Yang PAC, he said it was out of his hands. We have absolutely nothing to do with the decisions people are making outside of our campaign, he said, praising the city's matching fund system. Wiley, too, threatened to file a complaint against Adams and vowed to end the revolving door between lobbyists and city hall staff if elected. We do have to look at how we strengthen these laws, she said at a campaign stop in Harlem Tuesday afternoon. Ask about a promised one million boost from George Soros, the founder and chairman of Open Society Foundations, computer music. (laughs) 
and healthcare union workers 1199SEIU. That's like the main service workers union. Wiley pointed to federal campaign finance laws, quoting him or them. I have been a longtime opponent of Citizens United, she said. It is a disaster for democracy. I can't com- comment on other decisions that people make in independent expenditures. So it's like you can oppose Citizens United as a Democrat, but you're not really going to oppose money in politics in general. You're just going to still like, well, if it's money to me, it's fair. If it's money to others, um, but, you know, I got to play the game. Uh, Ray McGuire, who is the only candidate to eschew the public fi- matching system uh, and limits the limits it entails, was asked this week by uh, WANC Brian Lear about donations made by fossil fuel magnate John Hess to a super PAC supporting his bid. So he has a public position, and then there's this. So Brian Lear, who I've listened to his show quite a lot when I lived in Manhattan, he's a pretty good interviewer. In In the climate change era, how should listeners think about being funded that much by an oil company CEO? His response was, pretty much the same as Yang's. I don't know anything about what John Hess has done, so that's completely out of my control. It's separate. Stringer. Oh, really? Hmm? Oh, really? Yeah, how convenient. Stringer, who has stayed viable in the mayoral primary despite a sexual assault allegation last month. He wasn't, he has not canceled yet. But but see, this doesn't also, this doesn't mention the staff unionizing, which is sweeping it under the rug and basically making it a, it's invisible. It renders it invisible. Worker struggle is always never part of the equation. Even if it's like, this hurts progressives. It could take that tone, but just even talking about it. I only learned about it through basically a the leftist who's like on The Rising, which is replacing... It's it's a, it's a talk show, but now they've been replaced already. Did you see so. it online, or was it... Yeah, like, look up The Rising. It's a guy who is pretty woke, pretty pretty left-leaning. But, like, the first clip of him that I watched was him blasting the union workers, or rather the staff workers, for unionizing during the campaign. That it's like you need to unionize between the campaigns. But to unionize at a workplace. So when there's a workplace, that's how you're able to unionize. It's really difficult to unionize without an actual place, which is kind of one of those paradoxes, but or conflicts, contradictions. But, I mean... I've always mentioned, like, my bumpers, uh, my opening mentions the IWW because they're the union that doesn't really depend on a place. You can be a member of it regardless of where you work. You just join, and then if there are, if you get, you know, some more people joining around you, then maybe you can form a local. And it's also good for forming chapters that aren't maybe based on a type of work, like musicians. There are musicians' unions that organize with the IWW. See, they're all kind of separate bands. But they all have the same interests when it regards to like, look, if, if you're in this area, if you're going to hire us, these are, you're going to go by this agreement that the IWW, our union drew up as far as the rates. We all have the same rates, so we're not competing with each other. So now we're not going to be undercut by like, well, I'll pay these guys less. So you can just, you know, see the door. Yeah. And people don't realize how like important unions are until you, until your company lets you go and, I mean, some unions can be shady. Like, like yeah. I'm not going to lie. But, no, it's super important. I think unionizing is super important. Especially the professional unions that are okay with how things work. They're all about mm-hmm. just, we just want a good agreement for our workers. And that's why it. Uh, I'll, I'll come to this uh, maybe at the end, end of the show. Unions, public sector unions are against single-payer health care in New York. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, we spend all this effort or, uh, getting a good agreement 
a good uh, health insurance benefit package for our members, and we don't want to lose it. But what about the rest of the people in New York? Uh, the plan I'm putting forward will fundamentally end any of these questions, Stringer told reporters. We're going to simply create a transparent process, and we're not going to allow billionaires to put up millions of dollars to bend politicians at their will. So he's probably the most anti-money in politics, though, again, they all say things, but then they're all still playing the same game. Uh, we asked about the UFT's parent union pumping $1 million into New York for Kids, which is running ads for Stringer. He had a simple answer to his rivals. Any outside expenditure for me, as far as I understand, because we really don't know, has to do with union money that represents hundreds of thousands of people and not just one or two billionaires who want to privatize education. Because New York for Kids is anti-charter school uh, movement. I don't really see... That confuses me because I don't know the problem with charter schools and maybe I'm, mis maybe I'm misinformed, but I'm not really sure what the issue is there. Okay. Um, I'll repeat the talking points to the best of my ability. So they, in terms of they get to choose what students go there. So they get to choose, like, if they get to sh have better results because they're picking the better students. Oh, I'm, putting, I'm putting scare quotes. I'm oh, using okay. So what happens to the ones that they um, They also... Also, teachers aren't allowed to, or unionization is fought. So all the teachers there are unionized, and they can be fired at a whim, or they're always afraid of being fired. They don't have a lot of rights in class, though, of course, they're also thankful for the kinds of liberties they may have in the classroom as well. So there are some benefits, but there are also benefits that could be applied in the public school system. They just have to be fought for against the wishes of taxpayers. But the thing is, Charter schools still use taxpayer money. They're still privately, publicly funded. Um, they just have also private investors, which then they use that money to promote themselves. But they're drained because they're very inefficient as far as the amount of money they use per child, and the results aren't actually better. The results aren't better. And if they are, it's because they call students that are problems. They do not serve the disabled or any special needs kids. They don't have to. They don't have to, exactly. Because of the private money, and, even though they're still taking taxpayer, taxpayer yeah. money. Yeah, and depending on your religious or other cultural predilections, certain charter schools, especially in Albany, were meant are meant to replace parochial schools. So some of them retain the effects of, of a Catholic school in that they pose uh, uniforms or uh, certain punishment systems. And also the, the testing systems that they do or how they do things puts a lot more pressure on the kids Honestly, and, and it's expressed in like the in the how they turn out okay i mean there are there are advantages to that i mean i went to an all-girl catholic school and like i think it's super important to have that like really close learning environment you know not a thousand kids to a classroom uniforms help a lot but um no it needs to be more less exclusive and more open and more available like you just can't leave people out and kids yeah. out in the pasture because they don't fit your bill charters answer a certain desire for more community-centric schools to have smaller many school like a school per neighborhood instead of a school per section of the city it's actually like, like yeah, yeah. right based on ward let's say a school for each ward you can literally be living next to a school and not be able to go there because you miss the zone by a block right things like that so there's a lot of problems like that which having a more decentralized school system would answer. But unfortunately, in the 90s, there was a lot of 
Well, actually, no. There was a movement. Well, I'm just talking of Albany, but this is where it's our area where the charter school movement really got going. When it came down to it, people wanted better schools, but they didn't want to pay for them. So the people who wanted to do magnet schools, which would be more community-based, more technical, more arts-focused, they didn't want their taxes raised. It just came down they didn't want their taxes raised. Uh, I'll, I, want, I want schools, but I will not pay more for them um, because it's other people's kids who benefit or something like that. Uh, or just I can't – or they're retired and they can't af- hire local taxes. So this is a problem with taxes, local taxes especially being property-based and the fact that things are funded via local taxes when they should be from general fund national state taxes and then get distributed so that localities can do whatever they want, meaning community schools with specializations, with with all, all the things people wanted that charter schools kind of promise. But they're also doing it with probably like, okay, if, if the public's not going to fund this, private money will come in. But private money has its own agenda of we got to train technical workers only. There's got to be STEM fields and art schools will never happen. Um, something like that. Let's finish this. Adam said he wants to take private, public-private PACs out of the system. I am the only candidate in the race, the only one that has stated we need a 100% public-financed fund in the city, Adam said at a campaign stop in Manhattan. I will write a check back to the city for the $8 million I have remaining. I will return it to the city and return all the donations back to my donors if we will just go to a 100% finance system. I can ex- respect that. Adams' campaign also hit back at Yang with a web of accusations involving Yang's defunct presidential campaign, a nonprofit he created called Humanity Forward, and his current mayoral campaign. Yang, quoting Adams here, same guy you just heard with the guy with the Coke, uh, Yang has funneled more than one million from his dark money nonprofit to his two campaigns, loaned his bankrupt presidential campaign hundreds of thousands of dollars, and left a trail of highly questionable activity between multiple entities that promote him. In a letter to the campaign finance board, so it's not bureau, it's board, the Adams campaign alleged that Yang's nonprofit, which he resigned uh, from before announcing his mayoral run, is improperly promoting him without disclosing his activities to the CFB. In addition, Yang's mayoral camp is using the same Facebook page as the other two entities, a benefit that Adams camps argued isn't accounted for in campaign filings. So he's like, he's using his camp, his presidential campaign page, and then he just changed it to the mayoral one. So it has the followers, you know, of all that. The Yang team dismissed the accusations. It responded that the Facebook page has transferred ownership as Andrew's activity has shifted over the years. And the changes are laid out in this page's transparency section. The promotion allegation refers to microgrants distributed to Bronx families during the pandemic that the campaign says predated Yang's decision to run for mayor. Journalists just detailed a damning pattern of Eric Adams breaking campaign finance laws to benefit his donors, said Yang spokesperson Jake Scorn. In response, he's accusing Andrew Lang of giving too much money to struggling Bronx families during the pandemic. We'll let voters decide which is more problematic in a potential mayor. The finance board acknowledged that the candidates were submitting complaints in the wake of the Times report. The CFB will review all information pertinent to its ongoing audits of the 2021 campaign says spokesperson Matt Soilers. Candidates have filed have until Friday to file for the fundraising period that ended on Monday. And following all those rules, it's all very confusing at times um, or unclear. 
So tit for tat, uh, who's, who's really the, uh, money out of politics candidate? I would even have trouble determining who would kind of, who represents it best since probably the most progressive lower on the rung candidates like Garcia, which they didn't talk about, like could, well, they didn't mention she had some accusations. So it's probably them would be the ones that go with. So the third story uh, is from City and State. This is the kind of publication that is like published by Capital Press for Capital, anyone working in the Capital. So it's Capital, it's City and State, meaning we, we cover New York City politics and we cover state politics together because they're so integrated. But I, I read them pretty, pretty consistently for a few years, uh, especially when I was like kind of an activist, just going to the Capital for actions all the time. Uh, cause, and, and it just makes you kind of angry to know just how things really work. But it's, it's sort of important to know because <laughs> uh, otherwise you're just kind of angry, but you don't know why uh, or what to do about it. You know why? Because it's a, you feel oppressed. Like it, it yeah. Feels and hopeless. Yeah. And hopeless. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. How to reform the Board of Elections. So this is particularly about our election system in New York State. Will New York's dysfunctional voting system ever get an overhaul? This is filed by Rebecca Lewis. Uh, it's December 2020. This is after the general election from last year. With the closing of an election cycle like no other, a perennial call, call to reform boards of elections across the state seemed to be finally gaining steam after a series of error-filled elections that in recent years have featured long lines at polling places. Well, because polling places are closed in minority areas. Voters sent to wrong absentee ballot envelopes. Both Governor Cuomo and New York City de Blasio have publicly publicly gotten behind the idea of revisiting at least the New York City Board of Elections. <laughs> I'm taking it back, like, you know, just revisit, okay, we're going to revisit the idea of a reform, and only for New York City. You know, they, and, and by the way, they've gotten behind reforms before, like, money out of politics. It's meaningless, especially with the governor, meaningless. Like, he was like, oh, I totally endorse the fair elections bill, fair elections, you know, we want clean elections, which was the grant, but fair elections would have been a uh, matching funds for the state. And now it's like, no, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do matching funds, but only for certain state offices, like uh, the, uh, a, the attorney general and the comptroller. You know, we got to try it out first. And then maybe we'll get some kind of what New York City has for the rest of the state in eight years. But like what New York City has is totally inadequate. So we don't want this. We want grants. You know, we want caps on private spending. But that's not, you know, they're never going to be for that, even if they say they are. New York's elections are run by local boards, with one board per county outside of New York City, uh, which has a single board for all five boroughs. At the time is the state board, which is tasked with creating election regulations that local boards are meant to follow. Their office is basically down the street from us. All the boards, whether local or state, are bipartisan per the state constitution. While this short section of election administration does not lay out exactly what election agencies must look like, it does stipulate that any board or officers that run elections, quote, shall secure equal representation of the two political parties. Because it's like, this is what it means to be a two-party system, that it isn't just the results like, cause, okay, so when usually, like, say, in, in normie conversations about elections, two party system is like, well, this is just the result, like a natural result 
of of people's preferences that it just seems to uh, conglomerate into two sides. This is not actually the case. The election system is, in fact, run by the two parties for the two parties. And like that for a long time. A very long time. Yes. And you kind of need Before social revolutions been. required to basically change this. We, it was, <laughs> interestingly, like, there was something of a big, big effort in the what's called the progressive era, 19... 1890 to 1920s, where Western states got referendum processes and a lot of other reforms occurred in the Midwest, but it completely kind of passed the East. The, the machines were strong and they held on. Or they changed rules for the, with the fig leaf of reform, they did, but they didn't, like they changed like the surface level of how things worked, uh, like say allowing certain third parties or fusion ballots or something. But that doesn't change the dynamic. It's the, the tools change, but the results are the same. Uh, the state board has two commissioners per party, with each county getting one commissioner per party. Of course, third parties don't factor in at all. We don't get a commissioner. We don't get anyone in these offices. But it should be required, basically, that at least one green basically in this office. That way, if I have a question, I want to talk to someone who's on my team. I don't want to talk to someone who pretty much has an interest in lying to me which as far as the Rensselaer Board of Elections is concerned, we have a list dozens long of times like they told me the wrong thing and now my petitions are worthless. Like they they rejected them after saying that it was, they, they literally say like the date was wrong. Right. Oh, not on the form. I mean like, oh yeah, it's due the 17th. Oh, I'm sorry, we changed it to the 18th. Oops. Yeah, I'm sure. I think there is definitely a role for political parties and for candidates to have an election administration, said Susan Lehner, executive director of Common Cause New York. But what has happened in the intervening time is that rather than keeping each other honest, we have devolved into a system of gridlock. So there are these good government groups that I really don't have any time for because their position and their goals are just not good enough. Like she's, cause she's like, oh, it's just that there's gridlock. It's not that it's a two party monopoly duopoly. But bipartisanship is not unique to the New York election systems. Lawrence Norton, director of election reform at the Breden Center, I like them a little bit more, but they're still just a nonprofit think tank, said New York's practices make it different from basically everywhere else in the country. It's the parties, the political parties, that tend to nominate the commissioners at the local level. And there's a very strict adherence to having both Democrats and Republicans, quote, but dot, 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 perform certain duties. Norton added that other states often have a secretary of state as the final arbiter of elections. Even board employees, such as voting machine te techs, must have equally split by party. According to state law, local commissioners can hire and fire employees as long as they have, quote-unquote, equal representation of the major parties. That means if the board hires a Democratic voting machine tech, it must also hire a Republican one. And those hiring decisions are made by commissioners chosen by political parties without the restrictions of the civil service requirement needed for public positions. So they're not covered by the civil service exams or civil service, any, even though they're for public administration. And this is where I might mention that I kind of have a like the sort of right-wing libertarian sentiment or like idea of public entities need to prove how valuable they are by meeting certain quotas. And I feel that the Board of Elections of various uh, counties should be defunded if they don't raise the number of voters or the number of people participating. 
this would encourage them to actually change rules and reform things, at least even make Democratic primaries more inclusive or something. They will still be in their interest, and they make the primaries better. But as it is now, it doesn't matter how many people vote. It could be five people, and they wouldn't lose their jobs. It would still be legitimate. And it'll come to that when I read the um, takeaways for primary day, which I guess will be in the next hour. Reform advocates have long decried New York's Board of Elections, especially New York City, for hiring people based on political connections rather than qualifications. So instead of kind of opposing the stuff on democracy grounds, it's more meritocracy. Like we want people based on merit, not whether or not the most people are being represented, which would require anyone from any registered party, right, that exists. Not whether or not they have a ballot line, but if they are a registered party, they should have representation in this office, at least one liaison, one person. With an equal number of commissioners from both parties, there isn't a tiebreaker in the event of a deadlock. So it points out, like, this is why having the Secretary of State, like most states do, um, kind of, and that's what kind of creates gridlock because these local counties can just kind of do whatever they want. And if there's a dispute, you basically have to sue them in a court battle that can take years and a lot of money. And if you're a working class or even just a regular progressive candidate, you can't afford that. Unlike changing the composition of the boards themselves, reforming hiring practices would only require a state law. So a lot of this article is devoted to like, oh, can they, can the legislator just do this or does it have to go to a, constitutional change. I, for one, don't really care, but I do care about, like, the way these reform advocates kind of aren't clear about why they oppose referendums. So there's the side of, like, it comes off as we don't trust the people to vote on our side. We can't trust the people. We shouldn't go to a public vote. But their concern really is that, well, public referendums, and this is something that the West didn't solve, right? Because you got to take, if you don't take money out of politics, corporations can just outspend you in a referendum vote, which has happened, which happens in California all the time. They're like, yeah, they can pass certain taxes and, and marijuana legalization, but then they also passed, like recently in California, allowing for the sharing economy monoliths to, oh, it was a referendum making it clear that they're not employees. So they don't have unionization rights. They don't have any rights. They're all independent contractors by law. Replacing the current system with a top-down one would not necessarily require a constitutional amendment, meaning having oversight for the local boards. While some may decry the state's decentralized approach to election administration, Norden said that it's not inherently bad because having a single elected person in charge, like a secretary of state, can lead to its own problems. He cites when Georgia Secretary of State Brian Kemp a Republican ran his own governor campaign in 2018, leading Democrats to complain that Kemp suppressed minority votes by purging over 100,000 voters from the rolls, not being active enough in the previous year, and delaying tens of thousands of new voter registrations just weeks before the election. But the decentralized nature combined with the strict bipartisan makeup of the boards has led to accountability issues, of course. Uh, short of replacing the current system with something else, state lawmakers could create clearer rules for boards to follow to create a, stand, a degree of standardization without changing to an entirely different structure. Which is the whole, like, well, how can we not rock the boat? I mean, there's no, there's no way around it. The elections are just, they're, not, they're managed by the parties. They're not managed by a public entity that is, that should be elected, basically. Or 
it should be taken out by like partisan things. But who's going to run elections? It's going to be people who are politically active. And as far as mainstream goes, these are the major parties. But third or any alternative would not have any chance if the system is run by its opponents. Exactly. Always edging them out coming up with yeah making rules and even 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 if we follow and and i and i just i really have a disdain for people like who you know friends and and people in my circle who who talk of and they're older they're like older democrats who have had uh successes in the past in electing progressives and they're like if you got you know your petitions weren't accepted or whatever they do a bit of fall into victim blaming it's like you didn't follow the rules like, no, we followed all the rules. They still, you know, rat fricked us. And, and they're like, no, no, you just look, if, if you can't like get enough petitions in the time allowed, then you shouldn't be running for office. You're not qualified. You don't have your stuff together. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that shouldn't be the point. It should be about being able to participate. You're basically saying only the qualified and the people who have like only, you know, this type of person should participate in local politics because you only you know it's accepting that yeah 15 people running a city is enough and it's not all these making decisions for this like on like what the direction of the city is it really should be a very large assembly in which then we can be a little more less stick up the butt with who's allowed on or who should qualify I like new, you know, there's there's merits to New Hampshire's way of like, and this is basically every other country in the world, where you you pay a $50 fee, you get 50 signatures, and you can run for Congress. America is what says, oh, no, no, you need 10,000 signatures just to get ballot status, just to be able to run a candidate in one race. It's disgusting. And the fact that it doesn't discuss, like, everyone's just like, well, what can you do? I get really mad. What's that movie with Warren Beatty where he's like the he's running for candidate like I think presidency or whatever? Uh huh. And um, just like is just so. Is it just called the candidate or? No, no, it's like a comedy. I, damn, I can't remember. Well, exactly. I know there's a few. There's one called the campaign, but that's Will Ferrell. Okay. And uh, but it's and, always like some like some person who's always like being like so totally outlandish, saying like whatever they feel like, just saying like the truth of what the people hear and the people like love it. Go for it. There was a there's a movie in the eight nineties called Bull Bulwark. That's what yeah, yeah, Bulwark. And I've yeah. yet to watch it, but I'm looking I'm I'm it's on my list. Yeah, me too. Where basically a senator gets like goes through a midlife crisis yes, and he basically yes. starts a rap career with Halle Berry. <laughs> it's weird. At least that's what it looks it looks weird. It sounds like a classic. I gotta go I gotta see this. I, gotta I guess so, this. yeah. Ghetto superstar. That 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 was the, the the number one track for that one. Oh yeah 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 right. It was the theme song of it actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was it literally the. Yeah yeah and then and then because who who did Ghetto Superstar? He basically he was at a podium with like it was like. <laughs> oh oh. He was God. doing he was doing the nineties rap thing you know. Don't stop, yo. My eyes are sore. 
in the sun it off behind closed doors, hitting truth to the sea floor. The rich don't north, ignore the tug of war. While the kids are poor, open new and better drug stores. So I became hardcore, couldn't take me no more. I'ma reveal everything, change the law. I find myself walking the streets, trying to find what's yeah. really going yeah. on yeah. in the streets. Now every dog gotta stay, needless to say. When the chief away, that's when the cats wanna play. I told you, dress around your fools like cash and stay. Stretch my heat and make you do a pot of parade. Pick your balls like Pele. Pick them doing ballet. Peak like Dante. Broader than Broadway. Get applause like a matador. Cry yelling ole. Who the hell wanna say me from BK to Calais? It was safe in a commonplace Showcase your finances Lose up ass on the horse race Two phase getting D-phase Out like Scarface Throw your road money Let me put on my screw face And I'm paranoid at the things I say Wondering what's the penalty from day to day I'm hanging out partying with girls that never die It's up to you What do we do? What do we do? Well, it's up to you. You know, it ain't that funny. You contribute all my money. You make your contribution, then you get your solution. As long as you can pay, I'm going to do it all your way. Yes, the money talks and the people walk. Yeah. Now let me hear you say it. Big money. 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 Really real. The name of our game is Let's Make a Deal. Now people got their problems, the haves and the have nots, but the ones that make me listen pay for 30 second spots. 30 seconds. Yeah. 30, 30 seconds. Yeah. Yo, Bank of America, this table over here, Wells Fargo and Citibank, you really very dear. Loan billions to Mexico and never have to fear, cause taxpayers, taxpayers, take it in the rear. Take it in the rear. Yeah. Over here, we got our friends from oil. They don't give a shit how much wilderness is spoiled. They tell us that they're careful. We know that it's a lie. As long as we keep driving cars, they let the planet die. Let the planet die. Let the planet die. Exxon, Mobil, the salt is in Kuwait. If we still got the Middle East, the atmosphere can wait. The Arabs got the oil. We buy everything they sell. But if the brothers raise the price, we blow them all to hell. Now let me hear you say it. Saddam. Hussein. Saddam. I want you to give me a phone number. Dr. Morris Fishman, UCLA. He's at the Department of Psychiatry. Go, get the number now. Get it now. Go. Everybody going to get sick someday, but nobody knows how they're going to pay. Healthcare, managed care, HMOs. Ain't going to work, no sir. Not those, because the thing that's the same in every one of these these motherfuckers there. The insurance companies. You can call it single payer a Canadian way. Only socialized medicine will ever save the day. Come on now. Let me hear that dirty word. Socialism! Welcome back to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. Left this reading hour. Talking about the election system generally. That was uh, the last hour was basically for the uh, curious. Now the next hour will be more towards for the committed. Uh, But actually to wrap up, a uh, certain primary coverage and election system coverage. Um, shorter piece, but more to say about it, because um, it actually mentions our elect, uh, local elections. Uh, 
is from State of Politics. Another kind of we actually cover things on <laughs> uh, a, a day-to-day way. And this is published by Nick Raisman. I think I've met him, or he's basically a Capitol Beat reporter. Uh, four takeaways from primary day in New York. Very kind of basic coverage, but generally still useful. Surprise upsets, cliffhangers, and yes, some pretty expect- unexpected outcomes. Voters across New York on Tuesday returned a mix of results across primary races in communities from Buffalo to New York City that have all grappled uh, in the last year with the pandemic and calls for reforms to policing and public safety. Here are four takeaways. First, uh, and by the way, all of these uh, takeaways are all in conflict with each other, in my opinion. It is a bad night for incumbents. Buffalo Mayor Brian Brown is trying to stretch his tenure to five terms in the state's second largest city. It would be a historic development for the mayor after being elected in 05, but one that he may fall short of as he trails the challenger India Walton in what would be a major upset. Brown on Tuesday night vowed to charge forward and call for every vote to be counted, but Walton's lead could very well hold, making her the first woman and first black woman to be in line to become the next mayor of Buffalo. Walton, a first-time candidate with progressive backing, is the founder of an affordable housing organization and has been a prominent advocate in the community. She's also kind of um, DSA-endorsed and thus a self-described democratic socialist. When called so, she identifies like she talks of socialism. Yeah, but and, and it does normalize it to an extent, but it normalizes it in a way where, and this is kind of a point from more, more radical friends of mine, um, thank you, friends, they were, you know, they were communists uh, like myself, and, and, and I share their opinion in, in that what is left wing has actually shifted to the left, you know, the ratchet effect. It isn't just during our lifetimes. It's actually gone back centuries where, like, the, you first had communists that were for wholesale radical transformation. Then to the right of them were socialists, which were like, we'll work in a parliamentary system for, you know, and do this. And then trade unionists and then progressives and then and so on and so on. And now it's back to social democratic socialists, to social democrats, to democrats. And so now that I mean it's circ- it's cyclical as well as linear. It's not it's both, you know, it's spiral. And and it's come back around to a, a resurgent left or an active left, but the left is social democrats. And they're using the label of socialism because it's cool and uh it's what gets you attention, but it's also Sort of like this socialism is now social democracy, which is we're not actually going to change capitalism. We can't do that. We accept we can't do any of these big things. We just want to distribute state resources to the poor, which is just New Deal Democrats or it's what progressivism was in the 60s and 70s or whatever. And it's, it's kind of been the same place. It's just it's coming back as far as they're they're winning offices again. In democratic primaries, just dem- as Democrats. So, but it, it, I, I get frustrated because the, some of the people running as these progressive or democratic socialist Democrats, they were, I'm told they're former Greens. I'm told that they were like, they were in or, or other organizations and got tired of losing. But I have been an activist in these, uh, as a party functionary for 10 years now, and I've never met these people. I've never talked to them. They've never talked to me. I've canvassed. I've tried to canvass every green in Albany. I've never met them. Where are they? Where were they? And so, like, I'm like, you were gone when we needed to build a party 
And now that the party's dead, or, or at least it's out of the, we're down on ballot status and, and we're completely crushed, uh, as far as the public imagination is concerned, now you're ready to run in the, the, the one party state, pretty much, uh, and get your voice in. But I'm, now it just raises an eyebrow of like, I'm skeptical as to like, you were green before and you got tired of losing. Why, why didn't we work together? I'm, I'm just questioning where people's politics really are, where like they identify as left, a green or socialist. But when it comes to working with other socialists or people like myself, well, where we're like, what, what does it mean to be a socialist? Is a socialist just building affordable housing with tax credits or something? Is that, if that, is that what it means to be a socialist? Cause as far as the Buffalo, new Buffalo mayor, who's the, you know, mayor elect already. Or maybe it doesn't mean building more public housing. Does it mean it will not mean, I'll tell you this, it will not mean taking private property or using eminent domain to lower housing prices or rent caps. Rent control is still like something we can look into. Looking into rent control is basically the position, not, but it's, it's a half step. So maybe I'm right. I'm reaching as, you know, I'm not very confident in what I'm saying right now, but that's why I have more. Dogmatic friends. Uh, a bad night. Okay, yeah, so bad night. Yeah, in Rochester, invited Democratic incumbent Lovely Warren, nice name, uh, has lost her primary to challenger Malik Evans. Warren is under indictment on charges of campaign finance fraud. Last month, see, you can be a criminal and still be running, and but it helps you lose, I guess. But that's the only way you lose, by breaking the law. Last month, her husband was charged in a drug trafficking ring. Warren was said she is estranged from him and was unaware of the drugs and guns allegedly found in her home, which is kind of like saying you're unaware of what super PACs do for you. Democratic voters in the city of Albany, however, returned a different verdict. <laughs> Mayor Kathy Sheehan handily won her primary against a Reverend Valerie Faust because she wasn't, she's not a progressive. That's why. Uh, so it wasn't a, you know, centrist versus progressive. It was a centrist versus a, actually more conservative centrist declaring victory less than an hour after polls closed because it was just such a blowout. In the end, it's a Vicks verdict from voters. Brown is a former state democratic committee chairman, an ally of governor Como who has clearly made Buffalo a key beachhead for him in statewide elections is incumbent fatigue setting in broadly or just in some cities. Is this a sign of progressive ascendancy in mayoral races? It's one race in one city for the moment. Because uh, I guess Malik isn't a DSA person. Social media isn't always real life, is number two. Andrew Yang, the former New York City mayoral candidate, has a fervent following on Twitter, but once again, the cloud of social media does not clearly translate in success in the voting booth. Yang was the first top-tier candidate in the Democratic mayoral primary to concede defeat in the race, while the final outcome may not be known for weeks given the rules of ranked choice voting. But at the outset, the initial results show social media doesn't lead to success. Yang's Twitter following stands at around nine, uh, two, about 2 million. So far, he's trailing frontrunner candidate Eric Adams, who has fewer than 14,000 accounts following him. This has played out before when an analog Como was challenged in 2018 by Cynthia Nixon in the Democratic gubernatorial primary. Its web-savvy Nixon campaign ultimately notched the same percentage of the vote as Zephyr Teachout four years previously. So whenever uh, there's a progressive challenger to Como in primary, they basically get um, 35 40%, and they just plateau there, which is kind of most Democratic primaries to me, but I guess Buffalo has been different. But again, the outcome, but this is the takeaway number three. 
Turnout was very low. In 2013, when incumbent Mayor Sheehan uh, was first running for the job against Councilman Corey Ellis, who is now uh, council president, by the way, more than 10,000 Democrats cast their votes. Now, I thought it was 13,000, but maybe I'm thinking of the general election. It was 10,000 in the primary. At the moment, just about 6,000 were cast in the primary eight years later with Faust, actually this week, uh, according to the unofficial results. More than 200 Democratic votes, more than 3% of the vote, chose a write-in candidate. Um, I think if I was in the race, that probably would have been my share. Turnout can be difficult to gauge. I mean, basically anyone who's more progressive than the both of them, because that was kind of what came down to. People did not come out for Faust because she's not an exciting person. She's not progressive. She doesn't actually represent an opposition to Sheehan except a toothless one. Like, like a, what, what does it matter? What does it matter? Like, what, what was really different except that this is my interpretation of conversations when people complain about Sheehan. I ask them why they don't like her. And it just comes down to they're not, they don't like her. It's not what she, I mean, there, there's a, maybe it's depending on the person. It's sometimes what she does. Like they'll mention recent events, tear gas, that she's not against banning it. Um, gassy Caffy, they call her. <laughs> then there's, but yeah, I mean, she's just like, she's more of an introverted person. So I kind of respect, like, I don't take her side so much as just like, I understand. I um, I've heard some, I've heard some stuff other than they don't like her just because they don't like her. I mean, I've been getting some real good, like, I don't even know if I can say it because I don't want to get you in trouble. Yeah. But, but there's, there's, com- there's, there are, there are of course viable complaints, but I mean, what the, is the opposition to these things? Like what would fix them? Like it, it just comes down to somebody that's yeah. looking out for us. Yeah. Interests. They don't care about me. But she I doesn't care. She is not really yeah. for everybody. She's for a certain type of person. And yeah. yeah, yeah. Capitalist. And also, I, I'm not going to put it out, but like racially, I heard that she's not the most mm-hmm. uh, supportive racially for like Black Lives Matter. And that was a big issue when um, this, cause I, you know, the South mm-hmm. police station, when they trampled yeah. all those donations and they only gave those guys 15 minutes to haul out, to haul out of there. Um, you know, she didn't show any sort of remorse or, or kind of um, help with that. So. I've been I've been seeing a, I've been hearing a lot and I've been yeah. getting a lot because she has to stay on like the mayor has to stay on the police department's good side of course because they're like the the fist of their power you know you you keep power by having what's called like the keys of power mm-hmm. which uh, which can like to the military force mm-hmm. the bureaucracy you know or professionals you know and two others that basically don't include the working the base of workers uh, or the students you know which are kind of the people also doing a lot of the work and bringing the value to albany but yeah it would turn out being you know it just can go low 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 six thousand in a city of a hundred thousand i mean there was nobody in line when i went to vote that was literally yeah. like in and out and i was kind of disappointed about that yeah um it's just not much would probably spend on this campaign more is probably spent on signs i didn't see anything i didn't hear anything the only reason i knew yeah. is because i got that card in the mail yeah, just the cards, which are not not expensive to do mailing, mass mailings. The usual rule is you want to interact with voters six times. Mm-hmm. So it's like a car, a drop off card, a canvas, uh, a radio ad. These a sign, seeing a sign that's like they'll count as one. Mm, okay. So if you get the six, that's like kind of clinches like okay, you're the they're you're in their headspace. I didn't see anybody on Grand Street or anything like tabling or letting people know that this was happening on a bigger scale. I don't know. I just didn't yeah. see it. 
I didn't see it. it. I think there's a general apathy about elections. and But it also kind of goes to general political participation, too. So it's like, okay, if we're not going to do elections, can we organize in different ways? And I think most energy is more towards the community projects, which is why I'm kind of doing this, actually. Mm-hmm. I did this after a failed run. Yeah, I love that you did this. Um, this is great. So, you know, I ran for mayor. There was barely, I mean, yeah, no one knew. There was no good media. Mm-hmm. Even, the, you know, the TU can run a article or they can print a whole paragraph for me in quoting. But, um, but only one in 30 reads the paper or reads the TU or gets it. Mm-hmm. So that's not good enough. There's, we don't have like a, a, an Albany newspaper that's just for Albany that just does like little neighborhood stories. You know, I would have to possible, unless it's like face to face canvassing, which you need a small army to accomplish. But in a, an award race, that's a little different. You know, a few people can cover a ward in a week. But it just, it just speaks to like that the system is legitimate, that the vote is legitimate, no matter what, how many is it. And the fact that the rules govern it and make it, that's what makes it illegitimate. The rules, the, the two-party system as it is. Or in Albany, one-party system. And so there's cliffhangers, which basically, like, there's really no clear thing. Or the, because of ranked choice voting in certain, in New York City, and, uh, and the more uh, mail-in ballots and, and uh, mail-in voting, that it takes longer to count all the votes. So election night isn't really the night elections are now multi-week processes. No, they, they do have early voting as well, so that's also And that's the takeaway. Yeah, but apparently um, early voting helps with the pandemic or the mail-in ballots. Mm-hmm. Voted, like with the school board vote last year, it was a record turnout okay. uh, as far as people mailing in ballots. But this year, it was dead, mostly because there was no, there was no fight. There was no challenges to anyone. The board is doing a good job. No no one wanted to run against them. It was just the the vote for the budget. There was only one candidate for library board, which I had, I would run in that if I knew that. But apparently there were two people who I guess were running, but didn't get their petitions in or something because there were two people that got like 300 right, right in votes. And that's not like the 3%. That's like something serious. Like someone had a lot of people writing them in. Mm. So I had other thing. Let's see. That happened to me in high school once. They wrote me in for (laughs) for one of the running things uh, because I was dropped. I was kicked out of the race. So it feels good when you're written in. (laughs) Yeah, it means I actually cared. (laughs) Yeah, and it wasn't just convenience of who's on the ballot. Yeah. So here's um here's my peer uh, Sam who just ran for school board in Schenectady. This is his take on on the Buffalo race and and kind of more clearer version of what I was doing. When it comes to the Buffalo mayoral race, sure, I'm glad to see Byron Brown go as he is or was a corporate shill, but I'm not exactly optimistic about this Indian Walton that beat him in a Democratic primary. From what I've seen or read of her, there is nothing about her that is socialist, but instead she's a run-of-the-mill progressive Democrat. We've already seen a bunch of them do nothing. It annoys me that people are also making the comparison to Frank Zeidler, saying that she will be the first socialist mayor of a large American city in 60 years. Since he decided to not seek another term after his 12 years as mayor of Milwaukee, that's Zeidler, 48 to 60, Zeidler was a longtime member of the Socialist Party of America and was so while he was in office. He would then become a member of and the first presidential candidate for Socialist Party U.S. following the reorganization. 
While Zeiler wasn't always the most radical of socialists, he still clearly believed in independent left politics throughout his life. So thus, he was an actual socialist with a capital S, mayor of a large city. Walton is, and this is our framing, just a progressive Democrat. Thus, not a socialist and obviously no proponent of political independence of the left or of a class independence of working people, let alone the abolition of class and the racial transformation of property ownership. So what other people are celebrating as victory, I see very differently as a type of defeat. Why are we celebrating a win in a Democrat primary in a city where Democrats have held power since 1960 or so, especially when there is no Republican even running? This would have been a prime example of when to build electoral independence and run as a green or a truly independent campaign or lefty uh, if one wanted to be an actual socialist. If this was going to be an actual people's victory, then it needed to come from the outside. Why celebrate one party rule and why perpetuate one party rule, especially when that one party is the oldest capitalist party in the world? At the end of the day, what I see is that there was a Democrat in office yesterday and there will still be one tomorrow. Ouch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> truth hearts. But it's truth as kind of independent lefties see it. Why? Okay. Because we see the effectiveness of uh, Ivana Savant in Seattle, who is an independent socialist. The socialist alternative is her party. She won as that. You know, you, you can beat a Democrat in a primary when there's no Republican. Because that says, like, why, why run in just a primary when you can run independently in a general when there's no other competition? What is the drawback? It's kind of cowardice a little bit to say, like, well, we need to run in the primary because that's when people are, are voting or something. Or there's, or worse, less people vote in the primary. We can cover that amount of people, the 500 who vote. And we target them, and we can, talk, we can like, if, if the voting pool is smaller, we can win. If it's larger, we'll lose. I don't like that thinking because it's, in, it's undemocratic. It's saying, yeah, we can only win so long as it's within the primary with 6,000 people. Now, the general with a possible 50,000 people who could vote. Because you're basically saying, I'm okay with all of these people not having a voice, being disenfranchised, that they're registered as no party because they're sick of the two-party system, right? And then maybe they don't want to join any other, but no party is a designation. And now I'm no party, uh, as far as the legal legalese is concerned. And those people should have a say in who's mayor. But as far as the um, general election is concerned, they don't. As, as, That's or as why I stopped as, being an independent. I can vote. I just felt like, oh my, I was shocked. Yeah. Was did you shocked. vote? Did you vote for fa uh, Faust Tuesday? Um, I voted for anybody that wasn't Sheehan. Hmm? I voted for not Sheehan. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the that, that's my complaint about Faust is that she's just not Sheehan, and that's kind of always been the opposition right. to her, not her, which is of course what exactly. And I, and honestly, like I want to, I'm gonna be real with you. I didn't grow up in Albany, so mm -hmm. you know if right. you, if you were talking to me about De Blasio and blah blah blah, I know more about that because I grew up in the city. Ah. But it's just interesting how only being here for a year, I've already heard so much about this per like this person that I'm just like, wow. Well, also, we're a mayor-based city. And so if there's a problem, every, it, basically she's the one to be blamed. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of why, like, it's not really who's mayor. It's the fact that the mayor has so much power. 
that's what we're really upset about. But the, but it kind of it's turned around in the tribalism where, oh, no, no, if it's someone I like, I'm okay with the despot. I'm okay with the despotic form of our city government if it's someone I like who does favors for me. And that's where I'm like, all you people are fake Democrats. You're fake progressives, really, to me. To me. Because you don't care about people having access to government. You don't care about the most people being represented. You just care about getting your way. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I hear when people complain about change. I, mean, I worked in the, the state building as a janitor. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, some state employees, they were cool. Some of them sucked. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, it just, but it was, it was harder for me to accept that because it was just like, these are the people making our balls. <laughs> like it was just disheartening. It was oh, just yeah. like, oh my God. Like, they're not very, firsthand. they're not always very bright. Um, no. and some I've, of them are like just straight up like me, like just suck they're mean. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're narcissists. And it's just yeah. like, oh my God, like you are supposed to be representing the, and like, but some of them are really sweet. Like some of them were just like, yeah. I was like, you give me hope. <laughs> are they from Staten Island? Those are the ones that are like, <laughs> no, I don't know where they were from. Hey, I've met some cool Staten Island people. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> well, what? See, I've lo- I lobbied them for a few times, and like sometimes they're just like they don't know anything. That you got to tell them everything. Outside you got to be what they already always known. Like very mm-hmm. small, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. They're they're specialized, mm-hmm. which yeah is good if we have this really mass participatory assembly system. But we don't. We have a Senate that can block any you know. And and and, and on that note. Let's talk about one of the most popular – what is one of the most popular policies in the country? Medicare for all. Okay. Right? And in New York, we have the New York Health Act, which is essentially single-payer health care. Thank God for at least something because – thank God because there are other states that I'm literally like would be but end out if it wasn't for some of the help I've been getting with health insurance in New York State. Even though it's not perfect, it's mm-hmm. not – I've heard some horror stories from other states and mm-hmm. honestly – yeah. I mean, it's scary. We we have a mix of programs where, like, for like, say, health insurance for kids, yeah, and filling in some of the gaps for those that truly like. Okay, we don't have an excuse to say they're lazy. You know, that's what it comes down to. That's their it's their fault they don't have health insurance. Those lazy kids. Um, but it's not complete. You know, we don't have New York. We don't have single payer health care. But I'm saying it. This is the law that needs to pass, uh, or it needs to be implemented. So this is filed by David Lombardo. This is WCNY, Central New York, I guess. And this title is New York Health Act Undermined by Members of Democratic Majorities. So you can you can elect all the Democrats you want. Doesn't mean you get the policy. If you simply tally up the list of Assembly and Senate Democratic sponsors backing legislation implementing a state takeover, of course, is the way they state takeover uh, of health insurance so in New harsh. York. Uh, it's a way of framing it. The measure has enough votes to pass both houses. But that sign of public support, literally attaching their names to the bill, doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on behind the scenes within the New York Health Act, according to Assemblyman Health Committee Chair Dick Gottfried. Now, Dick Gottfried is the champion who has been behind single pill health care since 1992. So he's been in Assembly a very long time. and But he's the guy who's been fighting for this the whole time and basically been the leader of that uh, effort and to mention for the last 10, 15 years, we've been like a movement for single payer has been lobbying Democrats or generally the state legislators. We get a few more co-sponsors every year, you know, as time goes on. Some would say, oh, I'm not going to support this because we have the ACA coming. 
But then the ACA gets challenged and it gets gutted. And it's, of course, doesn't actually solve the problem of affordable health care. So we get a few more senators then. And then they take the majority. But then, okay. And then they don't bring it to a vote. The Manhattan Democrat told the Capitol press room that some members in the Assembly's Democratic majority, who are co-sponsors even, of the sweeping health care bill, have been expressing concerns and even opposition to the measure to Assemblyman uh, to the Speaker, Carl Hasty. So they're not talking to like you know the, the movement, they're talking to the um, Assembly leadership, the party leadership. Previous incarnations of the New York Health Act were approved by the Assembly when Republicans controlled the state Senate, which meant the measure had no chance of coming up for a vote. Since Democrats took the chamber in 2019, the bill hasn't gotten a vote in either House, lending credence to the idea that Democratic support for the measure isn't as strong as the public facade. Because of the internal dynamic revealed by Gottfried in opposition from public sector unions of all places, an important constituency to the majorities of both houses, the New York Health Act is not expected to get a floor vote in either chamber of the state legislature before the scheduled end of this year. Getting to the floor before the session runs out next week would be a real uphill challenge, he says. Following the adoption of the state budget, public advocacy for the bill has picked up, including rallies and a viral video but it's still competing with other liberal priorities for attention. Addressing the advocacy landscape, Godfrey feels legislators, partially in response to lobbying, have been more energized on other issues, like rental assistance and criminal justice reform. For reasons that continue to mystify me, the health issue has not attracted the kind of adamant waving pitchforks of support. Moving forward, despite that everyone has medical debt and everyone has these problems and is paying up the nose for health insurance. New York Health would lower costs, I think, by 40%. But it's also the doctor's billing sometimes because I remember I got off off, uh, Medicaid um, Mm -hmm. when when I got married. I'm divorced now, but... Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, I was on my husband's, ex-husband's crappy insurance and I told the the ENT, I said, I'm not on Medicaid anymore. Like, please only do what you need to do. She ends up billing me like $300 that my insurance, like, you know, because the insurance was crappy. I remember thinking like, I had told her specifically. It was just, it just yeah. showed me. I was like, doctors are just building, like, you have. They're not listening. They're not listening. And they, like, God knows what they were building. Maybe 300, on maybe 300 was the lowest they could bill. No, but she literally put a camera up my nose for two seconds, didn't even put it all the way, and counted it as nose surgery. That's what she billed me for. I see. And I was like, this is straight up. Because the camera test is just to see if there is infection. Right. But she didn't even put, she just put it on the rim. And she had even put it in there. She just well, I had, she didn't I, put it in all of it. No, because <laughs> you're she supposed said. to do that. You, you put the numbing agent on, and yeah, it goes up the nose. Exactly. She just literally put up a little thing to see where the congestion was coming from. Took it away. Took literally two. I was in her office for two seconds. I said, "Okay, thank you. I'm expecting like a reasonable whatever." I, I would have said, and "Like, no, aren't you going to put no it in surgery. further to justify <laughs> that you got a good look? Are you sure you got a good look? Because I mean, in past some doctors don't care." Mm-hmm. But then they want to bill you like they care. Just, just, just for public accountability, which office was this? This was in Manhattan, and this was a, okay. a an ENT in, in Manhattan. If I could remember her name, trust me, I would tell you, but I can't. Okay, good. Just but she it. was loaded, uh, located near uh, the west side on 86th Street. There we go. That, that gives you some clues. <laughs> Not a full doxing. Right off the C train. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last paragraph. Moving forward, Gottfried said marshes and rallies and the like I think are very important as a way of helping to light fires under both advocacy groups and legislators. Lighting that kind of fire is going to be very essential to getting this bill done. 
And of course, uh, there's other issues like legislative leadership won't put it forward until the governor's okay with it. But because uh, they kind of spent their gov- like their capital, they kind of blew it when they got the majority uh, two years ago, and they basically did everything against Como because Como doesn't support anything. And, you know, like the marijuana legalization. Well, he, he supported gay marriage, which was like a big deal. Only under duress. There really? was a lot. I mean, there was a lot of pressure. No, he, he probably didn't want to do it originally. No, I heard, I heard that he was actually pushing for it. For, I went to a, a, like a talk one time and uh, somebody that was. I'll, 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 um, yeah, you're right. Um, mm-hmm. I, I heard he was like, really? He was like, we're going to figure out how to push this and, and, and get it through and. But uh, yeah. I, I'll, I'll, I just want to put more the context of like, is this a political decision? And that like, okay, this looks really good. I don't have to spend money. I don't have to like raise taxes and I don't have to like, you know, <laughs> change any, ca- you know, how capitalism works. And, um, and it gives me a lot of good favor. I can, I can march in the pride parade now. <laughs> and yes, he did put political pressure on the Republic, on like yes. to two, two Republicans to vote for it against the fact that they had the majority. And those two Republicans lost the next their primaries the next year to Tea Partiers essentially, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's and then the, but the Republicans continue to have their majority, and this is kind of how Como wants it. Like he actually spends money of his own, like campaign money for Republicans because he likes he liked having that majority because as long as it was there, no progressive legislation had to be passed, so he could sell himself as a nice centrist. I mean, how long has he been in office now? Um, he's in his third term. Okay. Uh, since twenty third. How long 2013. was his father in, in office? I think, uh, I think two. Oh, wow. And that's where okay. he's like, I've about dying your dad. <laughs> Similar to, uh, W. <laughs> he's more competent than W, but he has oh, yeah. a lot of things in common. Oh, okay. Let's see. This is from, okay. So I have two, I have two stories from left voice. They're shorter. So it's called. The BLM Inland Empire breaks with BLM Global Network. So in previous episodes, it's been really esoteric when I cover it because it is an esoteric issue. But basically, you have BLM organizations that are kind of not so much infighting as much as there's tension between those that want to remain Democratic Party functionaries to have political power, have their voice, you know, have a space in the Democratic Party to do things, uh, to have. But really, they're just kind of tokens at times when you think about how Biden can be like, yes, police reform, um, but then, like, raise funding for police. And I have nothing against police. I mean, they really... Sure. I mean, I've met some really nice police guys. Help me out. But defend. But the the point is to increase the amount of funding for everything else and other social yeah, issues. Take the pressure off of... And them. not just say, oh, we just need better money or more money mm-hmm. for policing. Yeah. It's the wrong solution for the issues. Uh, below, we are republishing a statement issued by the group formerly known as Black Lives Matter Inland Empire. This is in California, announcing their break with the global network BLM, which is the kind of more umbrella group. So this is a particular chapter of BLM, kind of stating that, quoting them, which is the headline, to ally with the Democratic Party is to ally against ourselves. The group is now called the Black Power Collective. We will publish this statement as part of our commitment to being a space for discussion and debate among the revolutionary elements of within the Black Lives Matter movement and the fighting against the co-optive tactics of the Democratic Party and its surrogates within the official nonprofit organizations designated as spokespeople for the movement. This statement is part of a recent fissure within the global network of BLM 
that has already led 10 BLM chapters to split with the bureaucratically imposed leadership. So this is their letter on why they've done this. So it's not my janky words. To our community, recently a group of BLM chapters known as the BLM 10 have come forward to voice their concerns in opposition to the global network. These concerns, along with the egregious conduct of the global network demonstrated on Martin Luther King's birthday, have brought us to the conclusion that continuing to remain silent would be an act of betrayal. While the issues and problems that have been raised here have been well known within our circle for years, it prompted many questions and concerns for us locally. We'd like to let the community know everything outlined in the statement put out by BLM 10 is valid. We've also reached out to them and offered a sign of support. Vague on what was in there. Let's see if it gets to it. When BLM first started, we were originally, uh, well, BLM uh, Inland Empire, we were originally known as the Black and Brown Underground. In 2015, we were approached by an individual named Patrice Curlers, who offered us an opportunity to join the global network and organize as a Black Lives Matter chapter. After hearing her proposal, we believed that our work, direction, and principles aligned and agreed to join the network, renaming ourselves BLM Inland Empire. Uh, we were told that the organization we were joining was decentralized and leaderless, but we quickly discovered that that was not the case. The global network is top-down, dogmatic, and promotes certain chapters that choose to align with their direction and sequester the ones that don't. For us, locally, the chapter has been L.A. For years, the leadership of L.A. chapter has aligned with the global network and one united bank to impose, yeah, to impose on various chapters, particularly ours. We believe that while doing this, they received substantial donations and funding, despite them continually soliciting the community for donations. Keep asking for money even when you're funded. Together, the LA chapter, along with Global Network, have consistently tried to strong-arm other groups and have worked to undermine a grassroots movement by capitalizing on unpaid labor, suppressing any internal attempt at democracy, commodifying black death, and profiting from the same pain and suffering inflicted on black communities that we're fighting to end. In spite of being ostracized, receiving no financial support, and the maltreatment of both from both the Global Network and the LA chapter, we've maintained our composure while working to benefit our community. Clearly, we do not have the same beliefs or sense of ethics. We no longer feel as we initially did that our politics align. As a result, we are announcing that we are no longer associated with this Global Network. As an attempt to distance ourselves, we have de decided to rename ourselves Black Power Collective. To use the BLM name, which we believed was intended to unify our struggle, has been commodified and debased. It is now being used to sell products, acquire book deals, TV deals, and speaking arrangements. We have no interest in these pursuits, and we are opposed to the movement to substitute black capitalism for white capitalism. It has become clear that the global network and certain figures have platformed our struggle for the sole purpose of exploiting our labor. Furthermore, the issue of greatest concern for us is the relationship between the global network and the Democratic Party. Now, this is hypocritical at best, as the Democratic Party has historically rejected and ignored BLM demands and has made it clear that they are pro-police, pro-prison, and committed to capitalism. You can jump in if you, if you want. The, from Obama-supported police and his double cross of Eric Gardner, Erica Gardner to top cop Kamala Harris' denial of justice from Patrice Richardson, even going back to the 94 crime bill offered by Joe Biden along with the Prisoner Litigation Reform Act, that strip basic human rights from countless black people. Well, it kind of reminds me of like, remember when Bill Clinton was like the cool president because he was like, had this like. <laughs> he played like, the sax. He played the sax or whatever. Yes. Had this like cool vibe or whatever that was like speaking to urban folk, I guess is what they were I mean, it worked about. on me, but I was also four. 
Well, but uh, I also, it, but didn't, wasn't he the same president that passed like the three, the three strikes and you're out? Yes. I mean, that's, that's basically what they're saying. It's like Democrats have pretended to be for the, the black yes. brown or whatever. We feel whatever. your pain. We, but they like go but around. we're going to continue then, it. Right. And surpri- yeah. I remember that. Remember, think, get angry. Uh, <laughs> Amen. Yes. Even now, the Democratic Party continues to support imperialism, killing African heads of state, bombing Somalia, abusing immigrants, including those of the black diaspora, and spreading the U.S. military throughout black and brown countries around the world. This should not be separated from, you know, police reform. This is a party that is a threat both here and internationally. To ally with them is to ally against ourselves. Bill m statement calls out the lack of financial transparency and power moves by Patricia Cullors and others. The actions demonstrated by the Global Network have provided proof that the Global Network is essentially a steering committee acting on the best interests of various factions within the Dems. Additionally, the creation of the Black Lives Matter Political Action Committee is a violation of our collective agreement. You know, we're against money in politics. Why we, we didn't endorse creating a PAC, you know, and they create a PAC. This agreement was composed of two rules. One, that we do not work with police. Two, we do not endorse politicians. How can you not work with police, though? I mean, yeah. okay, okay, continue. No, 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 carry on. I guess I my whole issue on. with, it's just that, okay, everybody's like, okay, like, we can, like, defund the, I'm not saying, it's not about defunding, because I understand they're saying, like, just place the funds other way, or spread it out, spread the wealth yes. out. But what I'm saying is. It's just a motto. Um, there's also been times where you need, you need a cop. I'm sorry. There's, there's just gonna, you need a person that's gonna either come in, help, help, you know, there are times where you need police. I'm sorry. If someone's mugging me on the street. Has a, has a mugging ever been disrupted by an armed officer? I haven't, I think I have never needed to experience that, but I've also never been. I've never heard, I've never heard or experienced it either. But at the same time, I have been in places where I did feel safer because there was a cop around the corner and there Uh was a shady or shady things happening in Uh my, in that neighbor, where my neighborhood. Yeah, to have community security. Right. So there's, I think it's, I've covered this in other episodes that there is a distinction to be made, a left wing distinction is made between police, which are agents of the state and capitalism, Mm. that their main concern is enforcing property rights. And whether it's like to prevent a mugging is to prevent the taking of your property and not so much. And this is judicial ruling stating that their first priority is not people's welfare. They're not their duty is to protect themselves first and others second. Okay. That's That's an interesting take on it. Yeah. So there's all these other factoids that shift the perspective of I see them as my protector when... Oh, I didn't say that. I just... Okay. But you <laughs> said you felt safer that. as if they were Well, I feel like, uh, well, whatever I do... And we're sale, talking about the subway, like the safe subways or whatever. Well, the, the subway, you never really... I have anxiety, so you never really feel safe on the subway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, like, there have been times where I do an online sale and I tell people to meet me mm-hmm. at the police station because I don't want them to, like, exchange and then, like, punch me and then run away with my item. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like at least at the police station, I have more of a chance of mm-hmm. having this transaction go well do you understand yeah and i'm not saying um, they're my protector i'm not saying that it, i put them on a, on a pedestal i'm just what saying i'm there is a I, certain i would level. just point out that thing and there's probably lots of collaborating evidence that a crime can occur right in front of a cop and they can still do nothing about like they will do nothing about it well that's crappy because 
it's been, uh, it's been pointed out to me that their main the, one of their also duties is to just be a witness to say like yes you were robbed so if we catch him we can bring him to court versus well you can't prove he stole it from you it's his word against yours or neither of you have standing in court as a a police officer i do the other issue is like things that like yes to de-escalate to break up a fight right this is there, there are people you know cops can do this and they've been trained to but also so can anyone else oh yeah yeah and you don't need deadly to wield deadly force to break up a fight you just need to be trained in de-escalation i mean i've de-escalated some i've broken up some chick fights on my blog i mean right. it's the right thing to do you can't just have people beating each other and, and thus you didn't need to or if you did call the police to resolve it i, I think on in my neighborhood though i think they're not really the first i wouldn't be i wouldn't be like oh there's a fight let me call the cops i mean that's just Mm-hmm. That's the kind of drama we're not trying to have. But that is what white suburbanites, that's how they think. Oh, Lord. If there's a fight, if that. there's something, let's call the cops. Oh, wow. or some, or, or rather, this is how, you know, black death by cop happens, where it's like, oh, there's, there's a potential threat. Mm. I'm going to call the cops with their armed, with their guns. Mm. I'm not going to investigate or talk to the person and find out if they're legit or not. I'm going to call the cops and the cops will shoot them because suspicious activity was reported and that's how these okay. black lives have been taken okay so it's like an attacking police as an institution it's a particular institution that serves white supremacy or capitalist supremacy mm-hmm. and not community welfare so the shift of public safety creating like shifting police power to being public safety departments mm-hmm. is all about actually making police power serve us okay. and do the things we think or want it to do. Not having them be the initial response, having them kind of be like the backup if everything else fails. Kind of fails. Yes. Yeah. If someone else whips out a gun and starts shooting. Right. At um, that point, they could say, well, we're here first. Which is kind of what they happens. already do. But again, like they'll be really cautious in, in handling it, which is proper, I suppose. It's very complicated to me, this whole, like, it's just, it's just so heartbreaking to me that, I don't know, the whole situation with the cops, because, like I said, like, you know, I know it has, you, you always see that one movie with the corrupt cop, you know, and, and nobody blinks an eye, and nobody's like, oh, yeah, that, that, that's totally can never happen. Like, it's training. business as usual. Yeah, it's business, like, training day. Like, nobody's like, oh, yeah, corrupt, you know, uh, nobody's surprised Denzel Washington is, you know, whatever, you know, turns out to be the badass. But, um... You know, that's sad to me that we're just like, we accept the fact that there are corrupt cops and we're just like, oh, you know, there's corrupt cops, but you know, there's good ones too. You know, the message like, of the wire is that like it, everyone's corrupt. Oh, okay. I can watch that then. It's the system. It's competitive economics. It's capitalism. Yeah. That makes people act these ways. So right. this is where like the, 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 well, the existence of the socialist like me or the communist is to point out that we can reform all, all the things we like to make things a little nicer. But at the end of the day, we're still in a doggy dog economy where yeah. we we can try to reform things and have regulations about hiring and employment and subsidies. But at the end of the day, we're still not in charge. We still don't have we're not empowered in our government or in our economy and unionization and co-ops and, and dual power and building political power outside of the duopoly outside of elections. So 
as long as you're building political power, like you're non-electoral, but you're still building an organization that can do like tenant strikes or tenant organizing, that's way more positive than, you know, but I still have a foot in the electoral side because I feel like it's still part, like leave no battlefield uh, unchallenged. But it's getting, it's getting harder and harder to challenge the status quo in ele- elections when even most people on my team feel that or believe the challenge is in a Democratic primary, in, a, in the primary, when we easily, with the 10 people, get the petitions to run a general election campaign, at least on a local level for council or mayor, if things really matter. Because you, you can elect all the progressives to the council you want, as long as the city charter is mayor's in charge, mayor is appointing this person. It doesn't matter. Like, you, you just pass a resolution. And they pass, I've seen many resolutions passed. It doesn't mean anything's happening. Well, I think it's hard when the culture of the place doesn't change. So, like, you can have all these yeah. outside, like, block, yeah. we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And then if the the culture, and this is just, I'm just speaking because this is what we were coming off of of the police. It's the, if there's a culture within the police system. Yeah, and the and, rules and that's, enforce it. Yeah, and then if you come in as a rookie or somebody trying to shake yeah. things up mm-hmm. oh, and you get... Change things from the inside. You know, come in like Arnold Schwarzenegger trying to <laughs> blare guns or whatever and all of his action movies. But it's just like, you know, then they... But these, you know, if you come in trying to do things different and blah, 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 and then you get like suppressed from within, <laughs> that's that's a problem. And like, I think you would only know that if you're... Yeah, and I've ex- I've experienced it. Well, it's not just in police departments. It's but you see in it firsthand if you're a cop, right? Like you, you're gonna sure. be there firsthand. Yeah, you get teased by your peers if you want to go easy. Okay, it's right. Like, see, see, to, not beat up that. the homeless person. Really? Oh yeah. Oh my lord! Oh, you I've, have experience with this? Are you seen it from the homeless? They say yeah. I mean, they're covered in bruises, and they say yeah, the cops beat me up. Oh my lord! So. And that's because you think that it's like a bully mentality, like a peer pressure kind of a thing. I can't, I can't say for sure. It's like, well, he won't move. He's at a bus stop. There's nowhere else to sit, Mm -hmm. but he's drinking publicly and it's not worth arresting him for the hundredth time. So they just beat him up. Wow. Or he injured himself and says it was the cops. You know, it's really difficult. Um, but that, but that's where it becomes like, well, who do you believe? The police, you know, this, the, the upstanding, you know, uh, peace officer or this guy with clearly mental deficiencies. But, again, but that doesn't mean he has no human rights. Right. No. And, and if he's covered in bruises, it's like, well, that looks like someone did in fact kick you. And maybe sometimes, some days he says it's teenagers. So it isn't just the same person. Mm-hmm. Or but, maybe it's just one particular B cop. But then again, that goes back to the culture. Like we can make as many political reforms as we want, but if we don't change the mentality or the hearts of the culture, it's all for naught, in my opinion. Sure. You're basically banging at a door that you might put a different sticker on or a different sign on the door, but it's the same freaking Yeah. Problem. There's a general belief that like politics comes from like how power is used it comes flows from culture. But it's more of a circular motion between the two that much of culture is determined by how power is wielded. And how power is wielded is then reinforced by the culture created by it. I'll tell you something right now. I'm afraid of cops. I, I am definitely afraid. I do not talk to them. I do not interact with them. I keep it. I keep to myself and I keep yeah. it going. Right. Because I, they, I just, I don't, I honestly think. But you feel like if you're being robbed that they'll step in. No, at least I'm going to call them because I'll be like, hey, I just, I don't expect them to do anything about it. But like, who else am I going to call my mom? What is she going to do? 
Make you feel better. <laughs> well, in the case of, let's say, an anarchist commune, you have a clique of people who actually, like, would help you track down. Like, because the police say, like, oh, you're robbed. Okay, I guess we'll check, maybe check the pawn shops. Or they suggest you check the pawn shops. Yeah, I, I've had that happen to me, and they didn't check the, check the pawn shop. Yeah. Because I ended up finding my jewelry in a pawn shop a year after I made the report. Mm-hmm. And they didn't do And they told me they were going to look. And they this was in Virginia when I lived in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I'm not surprised. But I, I've, I've honestly never had to deal with, with New York City cops yet. But um, that was my experience with Virginian cops, though. It mm-hmm. was just very, like you said, very bare bones. There's a general, I want to um, touch on the... The, the board of elections thing where there, there's a tension between or like the conflict is is orderly bureaucracy from top down versus a decentralized where there's discretion and discretion is like where the abuse happens right it's where certain people have power over others because they have discretion it was mentioned in my previous episode about traffic enforcement cops have discretion about who they pull over who they give a ticket and thus discrimination happens right you end this by automating the traffic enforcement or automating the elections in enough ways where there is, aren't, uh, but there's always some tech involved. There's always some administrator. So I think it's the wrong question to put it, the, the way, it's the wrong issue to put it between discretion versus authority or automatic, some rules of fairness, bureaucracy, because then you create a tyranny of rules where everyone is just a prisoner of the rules that are made. And maybe that those with discretion are freed by certain rules, while the rest of us are oppressed by them because we can't, the rules say we can't uh, participate, you know, in many things. And the p- people who choose who participates have discretion. <laughs> uh, so it becomes circular in that way, too. Let me just finish this up. So it calls out the financial lack of financial transparency of the leadership. Um, additionally, the creation of the, the PAC. Yeah, it violates their agreement. We believe that all finances should be clear and transparent to the black community. We also believe that they should be controlled by chapters that adhere to a democratic structure along community checks and balances. Leaders that appoint themselves can no longer serve to be seen as leaders. We cannot accept charismatic figures imposing themselves as dictators, nor can we support personality cults. In the spirit of Andre Lord and Ella Baker, we believe that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And that Strong people don't need strong leaders. To that end, it is imperative that we engage in our struggle with our own tools and work to build a stronger people. We would also like to address the violent rumor-mongering directed towards the member of our group who is maliciously accused of being a member of law enforcement. That's a weird flex. I feel like that's a weird place to put that. That's just like, oh, and by the way, we're not, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, there are rumors (laughs) First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking, so I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, topics, or rantings you message on Facebook, Twitter at 3 Left Show. You can also email at 3 Left Show at Gmail. This program is made as a part of independent community radio, so support us materially, along with other producers and citizen journalists, with a donation or membership to WCAALP at grandarts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon, which is also at 3 Left Show.
Support the show of your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play. But a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at 3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the three lefts.